Good morning, or good whatever time this is for you. I decided to come down to church to record this talk because, well, I miss this place and I miss you all. I call this a talk because truth be told, it's more of a book report than a sermon. But the book is a good one. It's a useful one for these times. It's one that I found full of hope and it connects with the Sermon on the Mount. So I hope that you find that it is an appropriate talk for a worship service. For a long time now, I've been deeply troubled by all of the meanness I see every time I turn on the, the news, the political gridlock, the mean tweets, the fear of immigrants, the refusal to wear masks. There seems to be something sick with our society. And then recently there was this. I'm sure you all saw the video. I don't know how to respond. I wonder, is there any hope for humanity? The Bible is, in a way, a book about human nature. And the picture it paints is kind of bleak. You know where it begins with this, in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sample the fruit of the tree of knowledge and suddenly they realize they're naked and they experience lust and envy and greed. And Adam, he points the finger at Eve. He says, oh, she's to blame. And Eve, she points at the serpent, it's his fault. And God says, you're all to blame and drives them out of the Garden of Eden. And this is the start of evil. It led to Cain killing Abel and Jacob cheating Esau and all of the bickering tribes of, e of, of Israel the, and, and war today. And all of the strife that has that we see today in the modern world, Christians versus Muslims, nationalists versus immigrants, the NRA versus gun control advocates, all of this conflict goes back to the original sin. But it suggests that evil is something in the human heart. There's a kind of rot there, a darkness there. And that accounts for all of the violence, the greed, the lust, the envy, the sin in the world. Now, wait a second. I know you're thinking, that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus paints a different picture. But does he really? This is what Jesus says in the book of Mark, Mark 7. And he's talking to a group that's criticizing another group for what they eat. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter whether you're vegans or butchers. It's what comes out of a person that defiles. For it's from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within, from this rot in the human heart. Now, admittedly, Jesus also says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. I have to say, when you look at this, that advice seems impractical, even naive. So this brings me to the book I wanted to tell you about, Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman. Now, Bregman is not a religious scholar or a theologian. He's a Danish historian was very interested in sociology and science, 
he asks the questions, the same question that I did. What do we do about evil? What causes evil? And he begins by recounting what we all know about the source of evil and how it's rooted in the human heart. He talks about Lord of the Flies, how kids left on an island will revert to tribes in which and violence in which the bullies take charge and one boy is killed. He talks about these warring primitive tribes like the Yanomamo of, of Brazil and Easter Island to uh, where Polynesian immigrants to the island turned cannibal and killed each other off. Countless wars, the Stanford prison experiment, the Milgram obedience experiment, uh, the Kitta Genovese, this young bartender from Queens, New York, who on her way home was stabbed and cried out and 38 people heard her screaming, calling for help, and nobody lifted a finger. He talks about Adolf Eichmann, this mild-mannered German bureaucrat who over oversaw the Holocaust. And one by one, he recounts these stories and explains what's wrong with them. Take the Stanford prison experiment, which may be one of the is probably the most famous sociological experiment of all time uh, from 1971 performed by a Stanford sociologist named Philip Zimbardo. Uh, Zimbardo had the idea that if you put a bunch of people together and gave some power and others didn't have power, that pretty soon the powerful ones would turn into bullies and the weaker ones would be cowed and abused. And he set out to prove this with an experiment in which he took a bunch of ordinary students and put them in a cellar and he called half of the students wardens, told them that they were in charge of the prison camp and the others he called inmates and said that they were prisoners. And what happened is that the wardens turned into abusers and bullies. They stripped the inmates naked and, ho and hosed them down and did all sorts of horrible things that amounted to torture. And after, in less than a week, the experiment had to be aborted because of the danger it caused to the, those who were inmates. Well, it turns out, as Zimbardo's files showed out after the fact, this experiment was really something of a hoax. The person who cooked up the experiment was one of Zimbardo's students. He also took the role of one of the chief wardens. And he and Zimbardo coached all the wardens to be mean and to behave like bullies. And one of the inmates who famously said after a couple of days, I'm going crazy, I need to get out, I can't stand it anymore. He admitted later that, yeah, he really wanted to get out of there, but uh, his pleas for mercy, his claims that he were, was going crazy, uh, he was just play acting. Interestingly, in the early 2000s, a British sociologist decided to repeat this experiment with proper controls, and a BBC TV crew thought that they would film it as a reality show. This was just after Survivor and Big Brother had started, and they thought, this will really be, it'll be just like that, it'll be dramatic and exciting. What actually happened is that there was no, con no conflict, no drama. The inmates and the wardens were nice to each other, they got along famously, they played cards together, everything was cool and easy, and it was so boring, so dull, that it was just a lousy TV show. The takeaway of all these stories when you unpack them, Bregman says, is that what we actually know about human nature is that people, they want to help each other out. They want to do good. They are naturally, fundamentally kind, not evil. Well then, how do you explain this? Now farmers, you're gonna love this. The root of evil, Bregman says, isn't the Garden of Eden, it's agriculture. Now, 
agriculture is great because it made it made a lot of food for lots of people. People could settle down, put down roots, build their towns, which was great, but it also led to fundamental resource distribution problems. It created land ownership. Some folks had land, others did not. It created theft and police and courts and lawyers and armies and conquests and boundaries and slavery. The fundamental problem of unequal distribution of resources led to, well, structural problems. Now, structural problems isn't actually a word that Bregmans uses because it's jargon, but it's useful jargon in this instance for describing what he's talking about. So let me explain. You have a wealthy patriarch who's getting on in years and is ready to retire, and he calls his oldest son to him and he says, son, I'm going blind. I can't do my job anymore. So my, my land, I'm going to turn that over to you to manage. And my buildings and my servants and my, and my livestock and my money, you manage it. And when I die, I'm going to give it all to you. It becomes yours to do with as you please. And he calls a second son over and he says, son, I give you my blessing. Good luck. That's a structural problem. Let me give you another example. Take a guy who looks different from you. He's got darker skin and thicker lips. And you say to him, I'm going to enslave your people for two centuries. Then I'm going to free you and promise you some land, but I'm going to renege on that deal. Then I'm going to lynch you and threaten you and keep you in your place, keep you down by terrorizing you. I'm going to deny you voting rights, stick you in second-rate schools, give you second-rate jobs, refuse to sell you real estate in the cities. I'm going to put your dad in prison, profile you as a criminal, and then, and then I'm going to let the cops get away with killing you just because you look different. That's a structural problem. Now, let's return to this guy. What do we do about him? Do we put him behind bars? That's going to make some people happy. And I can guarantee that it will make some people very unhappy if we don't put him behind bars. But either way, that's not going to solve the problem of police brutality. The whole notion that we can take a social problem and solve it by punishing individuals, that whole notion is a structural problem. So what do we do about structural problems? Is the solution to overcome prejudice? I'm afraid that's simply a non-starter. Imagine that you go to the grocery store and you park next to this beat up old Toyota. And while you're walking by, you get a glimpse of a bumper sticker. Now picture the driver of this car. You know who drives a car like this, right? How likely is it that you'd want to be this guy's friend? Now imagine that instead you see this bumper sticker. Suddenly, it's a different driver in your mind. And not only that, it's a completely different pickup truck. Well, it's the same pickup truck, of course, but it looks completely different. Now, how about if instead of these, you see this bumper sticker, Mannheim Township School District? Different driver, huh? Now, are you prejudiced? Of course you're prejudiced. You jump to conclusions because that's what the brain is for. If it didn't, you wouldn't be able to navigate the world. The problem is when the conclusions that you jump to take somebody who's already downtrodden, who's already disadvantaged, and you disadvantage him still further. Go back to the guy who drives this bumper sticker. It's a guy, right? White, 30, relatively uneducated, going to vote for Trump. You know all this stuff, right? But think about this. 
he didn't go to college because he couldn't afford it. He had a child when he was very young. The child has health issues. He has no he has no insurance. And so he holds down two and a half jobs, backbreaking, unpleasant jobs. And this bumper sticker gives him just a little point of pride in his life. How does it help him? How does it help you if you look down your nose at his bumper sticker? So maybe the solution then is empathy. Maybe we just need to empathize with people a bit more. Well, unfortunately, empathy doesn't solve structural problems. And not only that, empathy is a double-edged sword. Take this guy. His problem wasn't lack of empathy. In fact, people who know him described him as a nice guy. His problem is that he was empathizing with his buddies. He was the oldest guy there, the most experienced. He was thinking, look, guys, we're in a stressful situation here, but don't worry, I've got your back. And if you're wondering why so many cops get away with this kind of brutality, the answer is that juries are instructed that according to the law, they're supposed to empathize with cops. They're supposed to consider not whether their behavior is just, but whether it's reasonable. And so a cop can say, oh boy, I felt threatened. This is a big guy and he was thrashing about and I was afraid that if I let just let up for just a second, he was gonna hurt me or somebody else. And furthermore, you can say, this is the way I was trained to respond. Now look at the police in this image, all dressed up in their riot gear with their face masks and their truncheons. Cops are told that when confronted with aggression, they have to respond with more aggression. They have to strap on their tear gas and their guns and put on their body armor and form up in rows like an army and face down violence by putting on such a fierce facade that you force the others to retreat. You back them down. And that, friends, is another structural problem. So what do we do about this kind of problem? Bregman's solution in the last section of his book called, interestingly, The Other Cheek, is this. You see this guy here with his helmet and body armor sitting on the horse? Well, he's fundamentally kind. He's a good guy. He goes to church. He's a good dad. His neighbors like him. You see this guy who you can scarcely make out, but he is leaning forward, hollering. He seems to be shaking his fist. He's fundamentally kind, too. In fact, all of the people in this image, they are fundamentally not mean, not out to get other folks. They're fundamentally kind. They want to be helpful. He calls this perspective a new realism. Consider the guy with this bumper sticker once again. My guess is that if, you, if your battery ran out of juice in the parking lot, he'd quickly volunteer to help you out, to give you a jump. In fact, he's probably got cables in his car for just that purpose. Now, I want to pause here for a second to say that I was explaining this to my son, George, over the weekend, and he said, oh, I hear white privilege talking. If you were black, how likely would this guy be to give you a jump? And if you were black, how would you feel about hearing this guy in riot gear described as a nice guy? Sounds a lot like Donald Trump calling neo-Nazis good people after the Charlottesville riots a couple of years ago. That's a very good point. But... Bregman's point is that you can think about people like this as fundamentally bad, people who need to be punished, or you can think of them as fundamentally misguided, people who need to be helped. And if you think about them in that second way, not only is it going to change the way you see the world, it can help to change the world.
My favorite example is a high security prison in Norway for the toughest criminals that's basically run like a summer camp. Uh, the wardens and prisoners eat meals together and they talk to each other and they hang out. Now the rate at which people who are released from American prisons commit subsequent crimes and go back to prison, the recidivism rate is 60%. Do you know what it is in this prison in Norway? 20%. Americans say, well, this is so expensive. It costs half again as much to house and, and take care of each prisoner as it does in the American system. And yet economists who calculated the overall cost to society of this said that the American prison system is 10 times more expensive. And then there's the example of what's called the Dutch counterterrorism plan, where they take young folks who have been found to be on the verge of going to train in terrorist camps in Somalia, for example, and instead of arresting them and throwing them in prison, which is what the Americans do, they invite them to tea and they sit down and they have conversations and they give them mentors and they invite them to join youth groups. And in the end, this is not only less expensive, it's way more effective. And he tells the story of Nelson Mandela deliberately befriending one of the most angry, most violent militant leaders of the pro-apartheid movement. And he talks about the famous Christmas truce of 1914 in which Germans and British uh, celebrated Christmas together in the trenches. And at the heart of all of these stories is just the opposite of suspicion and fear. It's contact and trust. As one of the guards in that Norwegian prison says, if you treat people like dirt, they'll be dirt. You treat them like human beings, they'll act like human beings. So what do we do about this guy once again? What would Jesus have us do? I have no idea. But in conclusion, I want to read a story uh, from the conclusion of this book. Partly it's because it's a great story, but partly it gives you a sense of Bregman's writing style. The epilogue of his book is a, small, a short chapter called 10 Rules to Live By. And rule number eight is don't punch Nazis. There's a different way, as the small town of Wunsiedel in Germany shows. In the late 1980s, Adolf Hitler's deputy, Rudolf Hess, was buried in the local cemetery, and Wunsiedel rapidly became a neo-Nazi pilgrimage site. Even today, skinheads march through town every year on the 17th of August the anniversary of Hess's death, hoping to incite riots and violence. And every year, right on cue, anti-fascists come along to give the neo-Nazis exactly what they want. Inevitably, a video surfaces showing someone proudly taking a swing at some Nazi. But afterwards, the effects prove counterproductive. Just like bombing the Middle East is manna for terrorists, punching Nazis only reinforces extremists. It validates them in their, in their worldview, and it makes it that much easier to attract new recruits. Wunziedel decided to test a different strategy. In 2014, a wisecracking German named Fabian Wichmann had a brilliant idea. What if the town turned the march for Rudolf Hess into a charity walk? Residents loved the idea. For every meter the neo-Nazis walked, the townspeople pledged to donate 10 euros to Wichmann's organization, Exit Deutschland, which helps people get out of far-right groups. Townspeople marked off start and finish lines. They made banners thanking the walkers for their efforts. The neo-Nazis, meanwhile, had no idea what was afoot. On the day itself, Wunsiedel greeted them with loud cheers and showered them with confetti upon crossing the finish. All told, 
the event raised more than 20,000 euros for the cause. And that's what turning the other cheek looks like to Bregman. Amen.